Um, for those of you who don't know me, um, I think those of you who saw me preach back in May, you probably know more about me than you want to. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Joe Burnham, and I, I sort of casually describe myself as a, a recovering Lutheran pastor discovering an abundant life on the other side of the pulpit. And so uh, that gives you a little introduction as to who I am. I've been here at the sanctuary for, for a few years now, and uh, there was an opportunity for me to preach today, and Peter asked, and I am, I am honored to be here with you and to, to share some of what I am wrestling with as I try and sort out this abundant life and, and invite you into to my wrestlings and musings. In John chapter 15, starting at verse 18, Jesus tells his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So I have a simple question I want to ponder this morning. What's the right way to be hated? Now, it certainly sounds like an odd question, but in light of all of the cultural and political tensions in our country right now, I think it's an important one to ask. After all, I've heard voices from across the Christian ideological spectrum who are quick to turn to these words of Jesus and use them to explain the hostility they experience both from the broader world and within other factions of Christianity. The problem is, is when we're so quick to turn to a verse like this, it invites us to, or it fails to invite any level of, of legitimate self-reflection. We get to assume that we are aligned with Jesus, and that's why they hate us. But unless we stop and take a closer look at our theology and practice, unless we ask ourselves some hard questions, how do we know for sure that we're hated for the right reasons? So I want to engage in some of that reflection this morning. We'll start by using my, my Lutheran theological roots. Um, and then we'll move on to what I would call more of a pop theology before we, we finally delve into a framework that I've found most helpful, one offered by, by Henry Nouwen in an essay titled, The Challenge to Love. So let's get started with some thoughts on how we might best understand Jesus' words to his disciples, beginning in some relatively safe territory. Uh, Steve, it's your and my Lutheran roots. In the opening semester of 2010, I served as guest professor at the Lutheran Theological Seminary in Pretoria, South Africa. One of the classes I taught introduced students from across the African continent to the Augsburg Confession, one of the founding documents of the Lutheran faith. 
Now, for Lutherans, the fourth article of the Confession, the one that talks about justification, is the most important. In that theological system, everything else revolves around it. So as I taught my class, I very purposely took time to demonstrate how everything from original sin to sanctification, from baptism to communion to marriage and politics, all connects back to the belief that we are justified exclusively by grace through faith. At the end of the semester, I I tried to reinforce the centrality of justification on the study guide I produced for my students. As a way of testing the quality of the guide, I ran it through some, some word cloud software that, that generates an increasingly uh, big words based on the number of times the word is used within the, in, the, in the document. And so when I did it, it, it popped up and gave me this. After the class, if my students embraced my teaching, They would be able to explain that Lutherans insist on original sin as total and complete depravity because anything less, any possibility that you as a human being could do anything that would make God smile based on something in you undermines justification by grace through faith because anything less than complete depravity cracks open the door for you to earn some portion of your forgiveness. They would also tell me that infants should be baptized because we need forgiveness, not just from the things we do, because who we fundamentally are as human beings. We are depraved sinners. Therefore, grace given to an infant in the waters of baptism reinforces justification by grace through faith. Finally, they would argue that any good works we do in this life are only to the benefit of our neighbor. Because to honor justification by grace through faith, we need to always remain in a state of total depravity before God. So God gets your sin, and your neighbor gets your good works. With all of this in mind, how would a theologically consistent Lutheran answer the question, what is the right way to be hated? Back in those days when I I strove to be one of those theologically consistent Lutherans, I recorded and posted a a review of the Vince Vaughn Christmas movie, Fred Claus. It's the one where, where Vaughn plays the younger sibling of Santa and goes to the North Pole and ultimately destroys the naughty list because every kid is a good kid and every kid deserves a present. Well, I critiqued the movie and said that there's no such thing as a good kid. But we all, because we are all completely depraved from birth. But the gospel says that even though nobody is good, everybody still is offered a present justification by faith through grace. By grace through faith. Now, based on the comments to my video review, There were some folks out there who, well, maybe hate isn't the right word, but they were not fans of mine. But I saw their opposition as simply rejection of what was needed for the good news to be good news. There was complete theological consistency on my part. 
Unfortunately, my theology and practice, while consistent in itself, failed to align with the theology and practice of Jesus. Jesus does not run around telling everyone they are depraved sinners. He doesn't tell them that they are destined to hell from birth. In fact, Jesus doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking strictly about justification at all, be it by works or by grace. So when I sparked the ire of people who read that review of Fred Claus, they didn't hate me because of Jesus. They hated me because I was being spiritually abusive and a shaming jerk with an incomplete and entirely inadequate theology. I was not being hated for the right reason. I can still remember the first time someone planted a seed that Jesus' teaching focused on something larger than just justification. I hadn't even gone to seminary yet. I was sitting in a small and muggy tent at the Spirit West Coast Christian Music Festival outside of Monterey, California. I couldn't tell you much about the teacher beyond her being a, a young and passionate black woman. I couldn't tell you most of what she said because my attention was consumed by a single comment she made right at the beginning of her talk. She said that Jesus taught the kingdom of God. Fifteen years later, as I sat down to work on my dissertation and found myself compelled to re-examine all of my theology, those words that I first wrestled with that day came back to me. It wasn't the first time they'd popped up. They, every time, like, the ministry of John the Baptist came along, or Jesus returns from, the, from the, the wilderness and the temptation in the wilderness and says, the kingdom of God is near, or any time I, I had to do any teaching on any of the dozens of parables that talk about the kingdom of God is like, her, her words sort of stirred up in me, but, but for whatever reason, it took 15 years of them poking at me to finally take hold. Now, we could do a whole sermon series on the kingdom of God, but as a, a brief overview, a better translation of the idea would be the kinging of God. You see, it's not so much about a, a geographic place as it is a way of ordering existence. It is wherever things operate per God's desires, where the rule and reign of God is honored. And that's what we ask when we pray, thy kingdom come on earth. So while I am not as familiar with other theological branches as I am Lutheranism, I can see that other traditions do a better job of trying to embrace this reality than my, my Lutheran tradition did. Even though I think they ultimately misunderstand just what the rule and reign of God means. For example, I spent a fair amount of time listening to and, and reading popular American evangelical theology both on the right and the left. As I've listened, I've noticed there's a similarity in the teaching that centers on what I'll call the, the holiness gap. Basically argues that God is holy and that people are not, and we must close the gap through faith in Jesus, and then we keep it closed through obedience. The big difference between the right and the left is that they, they frame, have different understandings of what it means to be holy. Generally, the right focuses on individual behavior. 
Holiness is tied to morality. This is why what fueled uh, prohibition almost 100 years ago. It's why true love waits was such a, a big movement in the late 90s. In the United States, it tends to take a strong national focus and becomes politically active through the appointment of, of conservative justices in hopes of overturning Roe versus Wade and honoring the wishes of, of business owners who don't want to make cakes for gay couples. In contrast, the left focuses on issues including racism and sexism in the environment. Because they focus on verses that talk about the diversity of God's people, they think in broader humanitarian terms when it comes to immigration. Here, holiness is tied to the idea of justice. And many on the Christian left celebrated Twitter banning accounts and the unplugging of parlor because they saw it as being in line with the kingdom of God. Now, I believe parties on both sides of this dynamic are engaging in a genuine attempt to bring a bit more heaven here on earth. And the work that they do is theologically consistent with what they believe. They are both trying to use what power they have to enforce what they see as good, right, and holy. Given that, I think it would be easy for both sides to think that they are hated because they are pressing for Jesus' agenda here on earth. But just like I think I was wrong as a Lutheran to put justification at the center of all things, I believe we misunderstand the Bible when we place the gap-focused understanding of holiness at the middle of all things. And as a result, once again, right or left, we still, don't, we still end up with the wrong way to be hated. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have God's holiness sit at the center of our understanding of Scripture. I believe that the coming of the kingdom of God is about the manifestation of God's holiness. I even think this holiness stands in opposition to the ways of the world as we know it. So the right way to be hated is to be a bringer of divine holiness. At the same time, we fundamentally fail to understand what it means for God to be holy. And therefore, we often fail to grasp how the kingdom of God is different from the world as we know it. So what does it mean to say that God is holy? One of the many themes woven throughout the gospel according to John is the idea of Jesus' hour. He tells his mother at Cana that his hour hadn't come. He tells the Samaritan woman of a coming hour when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. Jesus tells the Jews at the ritual feast that an hour is coming when those engraved will hear his voice. And on multiple occasions, the religious leaders attempted to address Jesus, but couldn't because his hour had not yet come. Then, in John 12, Jesus finally declares that his hour to be glorified had come. An hour will he will be quite literally lifted up. But it is also an hour when the light will most fully shine in the darkness. 
It is an hour where divine truth is most clearly revealed. And if you read John, he makes it abundantly clear that for Jesus, that which makes him glorious, that which sets him apart as holy, that which is most clearly revealing the work of God, is his embrace of the kingdom of God, even while being crucified by those who embrace the way of this world. And this is where Henry Nouwen's essay, The Challenge to Love, becomes so thought-provoking and helpful. Because it's according to Nouwen that the way of this world is the way of power. And the way of the kingdom is the way of love. And so God is glorious because God always chooses love. Let's unpack that a bit. Power is so ubiquitous that you and I often assume it's the only way that life can be. Power is akin to the parable offered by David Foster Wallace in the essay, This is Water. It tells of two fish swimming along when a third fish swims by and says, Enjoy the water, guys. The two fish pause. And once the third fish is out of earshot, they say, what's water? Nowen describes this ubiquity this way when he writes, we are judged, evaluated, tested and graded, diagnosed and classified from the time our parents compare our first walk with the little neighbor's. Gradually, as time goes on, we realize that our permanent record is building a life of its own, independent of ours. It is really not so amazing that we often feel caught, taken, and used for purposes not our own. It is really not, oh, <clears throat> sorry, the main concern then becomes not who I am, but who I am considered to be. Not what I think, but what others think of me. In this taking form of existence, we find ourselves operating in terms of power motivated by fear. So from the moment we come into the world, what we witness and therefore embrace is power. And it's not like it starts out rough and eventually gets easier. So I'm, I'm 46, and it's been two years since my ex and I separated. And that human desire for connection and, and relationship beyond my son, roommate, coworkers, and the occasional beer with a friend is, is starting to stir. So I thought I'd try and figure out dating in the age of COVID. Now, even without COVID, I generally suck at dating. I mean, when you live in a world where most conversation revolves around pop culture, but your interests are theology, psychology, philosophy, and politics, I'd struggle to find something casual to say after, hi, I'm Joe. So you'd think that maybe dating apps might help. Because, you know, in theory, I could find something on the profile indicating a mutual interest and then have a, a topic to engage over. But what you're really doing when you go on those apps is you're thrusting yourself into a world driven by power where you set yourself up for every woman to compare you to every other single guy in the city. 
I mean, I'm essentially doing to myself what men have been doing to women for hundreds and thousands of years. So even if it's a step forward in the sense that you've leveled the relational playing field, it's a leveling based on power. And so now both sides are engaging in that much more judgment and evaluation, as well as crafting an image they can never live up to. And that's before we get to me having to admit that in some of the most desired ways, I don't play the power game very well. I mean, the most stable of my numerous unstable streams of income involves me being a glorified Al Bundy in the REI footwear department. Or if you've heard me preach my story last May, there's the constant debate about when to bring that up. Seriously, you think preaching about your history with sex addiction is hard? Try having that conversation with someone you might eventually have sex with. No wonder Nowen writes, Sometimes it seems that a boy feels more relaxed in the classroom than when he is alone with a girl. Instead of feeling free to give his affection, express freely his moods and concerns to the girl he loves, he is more self-conscious than ever. Wants to make the right remark at the right time and is everything spontaneous. What looks at a distance like love is often, at a closer look, fear. And it's not like this is any better for many married couples. My second marriage ultimately ended because rather than giving my affection or expressing freely my moods and concerns, I remained entirely self-conscious and afraid. Constantly afraid of revealing anything potentially shameful about me. And always striving to do the right thing, but never from a place of genuine love or service. At best, being married to me was like a relationship now and describes where John and Sally walk in the park. After a 10-minute exposition by John about Hegel, Kierkegaard, Camus, and Sartre, and some other of his recent authors, there is a long silence. Sally asks, John, do you care for me? John becomes a little irritated. Sure I do, but I wanted to know what you think about existentialism. Sally, John, I don't want to marry a philosopher. I want to marry you. John becomes mad. Don't be so silly and stupid. If we can't have a decent conversation, how can we ever get along? Sally, there's a little more to love than a decent conversation. And I just don't want to be another of your classmates. And if they didn't say it, I'm thinking there's a bunch of women in the room who just thought, amen. But it's not just in our relationships with each other that we find ourselves living by power. Jungian psychologist James Hollis writes about this in his book, Under Saturn's Shadow, The Wounding and Healing of Men. 
The book builds off of the story of the Roman god Saturn, the god of agriculture and generativity, who becomes a tyrant. It's the story of power, jealousy, insecurity, violence to the principle of Eros, to generativity into the earth. Because it is without Eros, this power is haunted by fear and compensatory ambition, driven to violent ends. The result is a culture where men live under the constant pressures of work, war, and worry at the expense of their own soul's health. This drives men to positions of dominance in the culture and they establish the rules of how broader society works even as it cultivates violence towards themselves, each other, women, and children. To make matters worse in this world, because men establish a social order, any sense of equality for women often means behaving like men and conforming to patterns of toxic pseudo-masculinity. Now, some men in the room might be feeling a bit defensive at the moment. You might even be hating me a little bit for pointing this out. But hear me out, because I think what you're feeling is the beginning of revealing the right way to be hated. You see, if, it's, if what I just said is true, it is hard not to see how living under Saturn's shadow, under living under Nowen's way of power, is a catalyst for universal suffering. To make matters even worse, the way of power often sits at the very core of the Western understanding of atonement. I believe that in the West, especially over the past thousand years, Christianity has interpreted the Bible through the lens of power. In other words, because we as fallen people operate according to power, we assume God does too. As Voltaire said 250 years ago, in the beginning God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. There are a variety of ways to talk about how salvation theology evolved differently in the West versus the East. Many of you are familiar with the idea because Brad Jersick demonstrated it for you in this room. All right, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to share the gospel twice. The first time I'm going to share it uh, how I learned it, how I came to Christ, how I preached it a lot with an anointing and saw many people to come to Christ. And, uh, and it's based in a model that we would call a legal model. And in a legal model, what you have is sin as a law-breaking behavior that needs to be punished by a judge. And the gospel then in that model is how Jesus comes along and he's punished instead of us. But if you don't receive him, you get punished. But there must be punishment. And God in that model is really a judge. The second version I'm going to show you, it's much more of a therapeutic model or a healing model or a, a hospital model. So instead of a courtroom, um, if we were to use a metaphor, it would be more like a hospital where sin is a fatal disease that kills everybody. And you can't punish a disease out of someone. You can't spank a flu out of a, out of a baby. And you can't jail someone until their HIV goes away. It doesn't work that way. It's far more serious than law-breaking behavior. What we need then is not a punishing judge, but a great physician. 
What you might not know is that five years before Brad shared it with you, it was first put on my radar by this guy. Although, rather than talking about the therapeutic model, he titled his video, The Orthodox View of Salvation. Father Richard Rohr points us to those in his Jesuit tradition who would say that according to the way of power, Jesus changes God's mind about us. This stance could contrast to the way of love where Jesus converts us from the way of power to the way of love and changes our mind about God. I'm convinced that this distinction between living by power and living by love is at the heart of what John means when he writes about dark versus light and this world versus the age to come. In other words, what Nouwen calls the way of love is both the kingdom manifest and the logos of God. So how does life look different under love? It begins when you dare to be seen. You dare to be known. And you reject the temptation to defend, excuse, explain, or rationalize yourself because you know that no matter how ugly things might be on the surface, that you're loved. Now let's pull out that out of theory and put some skin on it. And I'll start with an example from my week. I mentioned earlier my foray into online dating, the online dating world. Well, I've been messaging someone on and off for the past month, and we've been talking about trying to connect in person, but between our schedules and COVID restrictions and uncooperative weather, things just hadn't worked out. But last Sunday, she texted me and asked me what I was up to. I mentioned that in part I was preparing to preach this week, and I said, I'm trying to wrap my mind around how I want to approach my given topic given everything that's going on in the world right now. And after clicking send, I realized that really wasn't what was going on. So I sent a follow-up message and said, by the way, since we're exploring the whole dating thing, and I pledged myself to uncomfortable honesty with someone I'm interested in, you can read trying to wrap my mind around as I'm having a serious preemptive vulnerability hangover with sides of hypocrisy and inadequacy. She messaged back that she didn't totally understand what I meant and asked me to explain. So I shared a bit about love and power, read her a quote from now and talked about how I've played vulnerability in past relationships and shared why sermon prep is such an emotionally intense experience. I hated every moment of sharing because it left me feeling completely exposed. The whole time I kept saying in the back of my mind, it doesn't matter how she responds, you're loved. It doesn't matter how she responds, you're loved. It doesn't matter how she responds, you're loved. Over and over and over again. And it's true. No matter how she responded, the gospel declares that God sees me in the fullness of who I am. 
God simultaneously sees both my strength and my weakness, my confidence and my insecurity, my faith and my doubt, my kindness, my anger, my loyalty and my infidelity, my compassion and my cruelty, my love and my lust, and he sees that full picture of me and more. And God relentlessly loves me. Not part of me, all of me. Well, the way of power says I need to rip out and purge that which isn't good, or if I can't get rid of it, invites me to hide it. The way of love calls me to be honest about all of it. And you know what? The way of power hates vulnerability and everything else it perceives as weakness. But the way of love doesn't stop there. Rather, love insists on seeing others for who they are and inviting them to reject their attempts to hide behind the fig leaves of a crafted self-image. That's what Jesus does when he comes to the Samaritan woman at the well. You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Notice he doesn't condemn her. He doesn't point out her moral failings. He says something to the effect of, yeah, that's true. But I know that there's more that you're hiding because you're ashamed of it. He realizes that this woman, in a culture where women were dependent upon men for provision, had had five different men pledge to care for her. And, the, and then, those five men had either died or just cast her aside. And now the guy that she's with won't even make that commitment. Can you imagine how much that hurts? The last thing she wants is to be seen and known. Because she knows in a world that operates on power, she will be rejected. And she has been rejected. As a man who granted in a very different culture married two different women and promised to love and be faithful to them only to deliver duplicitous infidelity, the last thing I want is for my dating record to be seen. But as I embrace the way of love, love refuses to let me hide. And you know what? Sometimes I hate love for it. But this exposure doesn't just happen to individuals. Jesus also explodes, exposes exploitive institutions. In common parlance, you could say that he speaks truth to power. One example of this comes in John 2 when Jesus cleanses the temple. As I research this act of Jesus, which appears in various forms in each gospel text, it seems that common answers as to why he was upset, like the idea that there wasn't room for the Gentiles or he was opposed to any kind of marketplace, don't seem to hold up. As you can see in the image, the court of the Gentiles is a massive space. It's that big outer area there around the temple where you can see the little ant-like people standing. There's more than enough room for a marketplace and for the Gentiles to gather, even if they had to socially distance. 
Moreover, the law requires sacrifices. And sacrifices require animals. And traveling long distances with animals is dangerous. It risks injury to the animal, making them sacrificially unworthy. So logically, it's just easier to buy them in Jerusalem. Buying animals requires the right currency, so money changing is necessary. Given that the court of the Gentiles is one of the few places near the temple where there's room to conduct this necessary temple business, it only makes sense to do it right there near where the sacrifices take place. So what is Jesus' objection? Given Jesus' broader issues with exploitation and greed, including the the rich man who built larger barns for himself, or the rich young ruler, or the way that Zacchaeus responded when he came to faith, the most logical conclusion is that Jesus objected to how they were conducting business. That they weren't seeking to offer a service that benefited the people, but one that allowed the rich to grow richer at the expense of the poor because the poor had no other legitimate options to purchase their required sacrifices. In other words, Jesus was angry because the temple conducted business using the tactics of power. Tactics that were designed to elevate the popular perception of the merchant class while degrading the perception of the economically marginalized. It makes you wonder how Jesus might respond to the economic climate in America today. And so we find ourselves a bit closer to the right way to be hated. This love and power framework forces us to re-examine every aspect of our individual and individual lives and how we function in society. Yes, it will make us uncomfortable as home as we reveal our truest selves and fear that our partner won't love who they see. It'll force us to rethink how we do business and talk politics. It offends both the power right and the power left by revealing the truth of how so much of what's done, no matter what the issue, is really about expanding their own power. It exposes the corruption across the board. And when love does that to those who've spent their whole lives crafting power, it's going to be hated. But in contrast to the Lutheran way of power that seeks to highlight inadequacy and strip away any sense of power, and in in contrast to the more popular American Christianity that seeks to demonstrate its own power and therefore superiority over others, the gospel, even as it exposes us, gently invites us to resist following the path of Adam and Eve, telling us not to cover ourselves but to bask in rays of divine love and invite others to bask with us. There, as we discover that we are truly loved for who we are, not for the image we project, we slowly find ourselves less desperate for power. The only reason I told that young woman about the emotional intensity and insecurity that comes during sermon prep is because I know I'm loved. And my vulnerability then gave her permission to be vulnerable as well. 
It invites her to embrace the reality that even if we don't ultimately match, she too is loved just as she is. But that's scary. Not everyone will accept that. So when love insists on honesty, when it expects revelation of all the ugly details, when it insists that we be truthful about our doubts, fears, insecurities, and manipulations, some people will hate it. But that's why they hated Jesus. And that's what makes it the right way to be hated. Sometime on that same night that Jesus told his disciples that the world would hate them, he took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, take, eat, this is my body. This is the way of love made flesh. And I want you to digest it. I want to consume it so in time it will consume you. Then he took the cup and said, this is my blood. This is the way of love that flows through me. Drink it so that it can flow through you as well. What we know is power, but what we receive in this meal is love. So take and eat, and as you do, ask love to have its way with you, even when you hate it. In Jesus' name. Amen. All of you is seen. All of you is known. But don't be afraid because all of you is loved. In Jesus' name. Believe the gospel.